You're listening to the podcast for grain merchandisers by grain merchandisers. Join us in our good humored attempt to serve as a voice of reason in an industry fraught with misconceptions and half truths. And now, from deep in America's heartland, this is the Elevator's Cut. Welcome back to another episode of The Elevator's Cut. I am one of your hosts, Jason Wheeler. And I'm your other host, Roger Gaddis. And today, we have a special guest on. All of our guests are special. Uh, an extra special guest on. We have with us today, Kelly James, founder and CEO of Mercaris. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Hey there. Good to be here. Now, how did we get to this point? Well, we have lots of special guests, but this is, you could call a specialty guest, if you will. This guy knows. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, so uh, so today, I mean, the big topic is, and what Kelly's an expert on, and, and we've got her to, to discuss is, is those, depending on where you're from, niche markets, niche markets, however you want to say it, but um <laughs> The organics, the non-GMOs and other stuff that is stuff she specializes in, specialty things. Yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously it's not something we're real adept at, but but it's it's a big part of our industry, right? So um, so we appreciate it. But Kelly, could, could you just kind of give us some of your, your personal background and then uh, your company as well? Yeah. So first of all, I'm, uh, thank you for inviting me on this show. I've been following you all on Twitter for a little while, and I always appreciate the the sort of clear sighted, you know, calm market commentary that reminder to kind of everybody take a deep breath and, and, and look at the numbers, which I always appreciate. Uh, I'm a numbers person. And, um, and, and as far as Mercaris, you know, I'll say, you know, we're about LinkedIn helpfully reminded me that Mercaris is 10 years old now, which makes me feel All right. old. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, over the course of, of the company, we really haven't changed our mission, which is that you know these emerging markets are are a thing. You know some of them are getting quite quite large now um, compared to you know comparatively speaking. And if you look at just the you know year over year growth, and that these markets, um, whether you're talking about organic or you know plant proteins having a moment, and you know they they all need the same thing that every market needs, which is really good information and data so you can make decisions. And whether it's cash market data or you know supply data, demand data you know, trade statistics, anything that impacts price has really been lacking in a lot of these markets. And so we stepped into that gap to provide that. And then at the same time, we stood up a, an online trading platform just because, well, for two reasons. One, you know, the in, in general, in the year of our Lord, 2022, you know, if you're spending, people spend a lot of time on the phone in this, in this industry. And we thought, well, maybe we can cut, you know, make things a little easier and cut some time out of, of the process by letting people list um, lists to buy and sell online instead of always being on the phone. Um, but for us though, it's a, it's kind of a different motivation. We want uh, anytime someone trades something on our platform, that is real-time price information that we can push out into our market analysis and our price reports. So for us, it's just a, it's a tool for price discovery, <clears throat> which you may not need when you're talking about conventional corn, because you, you know, prices are really transparent, but when it comes to something like organic corn or non-GMO soybeans, you know, it's, it's a little murkier picture. So that's what we, that's what we do. Awesome. So how, how did you, so your personal journey bef before starting uh, this, this organization stuff, how did, how did you end up uh, coming about 
the, with this company? Oh man, I took a, a left turn somewhere and I ended up here. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up in a, I did not grow up in an ag family. Um, my dad was army. Both my parents grew up like in the Bronx and, and New York city um, mm. area. So really I had no ag background at all, but my dad was in the army and the military bases are usually in fairly rural areas. And I just, from the time I could walk, I was obsessed with, you know, horses. And I worked on a cow-calf operation when I was a teenager, um, when I was in high school. And I just really enjoyed that type of work. And then when I went to grad school, I ended up, um, I I got a a job, like a consulting, an internship that turned into a consulting gig uh, where I was working with coffee farmers in Central America. And it was really eye-opening to me because you really saw the effect of commodity markets on the ground. You know, coffee prices were low. You could see the stress in the communities. There was no hedging there. It was just a, a lot of these guys were growing, you know, really, these families were growing really um, sort of low quality coffee that just got the command of the very lowest price. And, um, and so I worked on a project where they were, it was grants and, and other types of investments to get them into things like fair trade coffee or organic coffee or, you know, specialty coffees, like anything where they could get a little bit of a premium. And it was, to me, it was just a powerful example of when you connect, you know, consumer demand in one area with, you know, market supply on the other, you can really change people's lives. And and as corny as that sounds, I really enjoyed that. So then I came back to the States and said, well, how do we do more of that? And how can we use markets for other things like, you know, carbon credits? I was part of the Chicago Climate Exchange which was, you know, almost, gosh, 15 years ago, a little bit more, it was the first place you could trade a cash market for carbon, they had a cap and trade program. And then we very shortly thereafter launched futures and options on carbon and sulfur and renewable energy credits and, you know, anything that was an environmental derivative, we were interested in letting people trade. Um, And it was pretty liquid too. I mean, it was, you know, $8 billion notional value of carbon traded the the last year that I was there, you know, at the exchange. So I have always been interested in using markets as a tool to achieve other things, whether it's, you know, financial security, environmental, or, you know, social performance. So this is just a sneaky way of doing that. And ag has, I feel like ag has a lot of those opportunities. And a lot of the talk that kind of bubbles up every few years, whether it's regenerative or carbon or, you know, whatever word people choose to use is um, ag has a role to play in that. So I'm, I'm, you know, always interested in that type of work. You, awesome. you know, that's, that's, you kind of touch on a good point there. And from the conventional side of ag uh, production, grain ag, we, we do hear a lot of these um, catchphrases and, and keywords and stuff. And, uh, you know, f- from us being on, on the outside looking in, and, and you see this a lot uh, just out in our industry, you, you know, whether someone brings up carbon or, regenerative or, or what have you, sometimes it can tend to, you know, and I think it just comes from a place of maybe not understanding, but, you know, rolling eyes or like, oh, here's the next thing. And, and uh, so, you know, from that standpoint, I'm, I'm sure you, you've, you've uh, worked through a lot of these different turns of, of uh, seasons of different things coming about, but what in your opinion, Kelly, is, is the consistent aspect of the, of the, the specialty grain and specialty product side of the business that uh, you see is giving it, um, you know, longevity going forward. Yeah. So one of the things I'll say is, and here's where I think, you know, maybe conventional and, and all these wild new markets are, aren't so far apart or shouldn't be is that 
I think conventional market, you know, traders, growers could have a lot to say about the practicality of some of these markets. So what I mean by that is, you know, for really for markets to work, it's not really a mystery whether you're talking about carbon or you're talking about conventional corn, you know, you have to have certain things like, for example, like standards. <laughs> and so the problem I have with regenerative right now is like, I don't know what regenerative means. And that may be fine. It might mean, it might always mean different things in different locations to different people but it makes it really hard to, to make it a commodity market like some folks are trying to do. So kind of a dose of reality of what makes markets work, what fosters liquidity versus what you know, kills it is you know, when a lot of these markets are getting started, I, I wish there was more of a process where you know, folks like yourself, you know, folks that have some real hard won experience in, in trading these markets, in trading markets, tradable markets um, were part of the, the discussion. Um, why I think organic has a lot of potential and why we chose to cover this market as if it were a commodity is because if you look at it, it really is. And I'm, I'm using the economic definition of a commodity because you still have some organic growers or, or folks in the organic supply chain that are like, this is not a commodity. We don't want to be part of that world. And I get it. You know, they want to, you know, everyone wants to differentiate. But the reality is, is a truckload of yellow number two feed grade organic corn is interchangeable with any other truckload of yellow number two organic feed grade corn. It, you know, it, it, it operates, it's, it's a set of specifications and the organic piece is a specific, um, it, it's a specific standard that was promulgated by USDA, verified by a set of, of certifiers that have been empowered to do so by USDA. Uh, it's kind of boots on the ground, farm inspection, you know, are you planting a cover crop? You know, what are you doing to, are you, are you using a uh, seed that's not been treated, not gen been genetically modified? Uh, you can't spray chemical pesticides or, you know, chemical fertilizer, you can't use chemical fertilizer. So it's a set of practices that once it's verified, it gets that organic label. And then it's comparable with every other organic corn or soybean or wheat, you know, bushel of wheat, out, you know, out there. So that's why I think it's, it's, that's what's, different about some of these markets is they're standardized. And whether you're talking about, you know, a blue corn or, you know, an organic soybean or, or what have you, they have standards that the market recognizes either through convention, you know, through practice commercial demand or because there's actual regulation around it. And I would think also what would make it more commoditized is, yeah, this kind of standard pricing, which is obviously what you track. So do you, mm -hmm. do you see that economically speaking uh, across the board? Obviously, you know, commodity corn, you know, your standard uh, conventional corn is different depending on where you are in the country because of basis and all that stuff. But does it, does it track kind of together? Does it, how closely does it track with, with non-organic corn? And like, yeah. what do you see there? Yeah, so we did a lot of studies and we still have produced reports to this day that'll let you kind of plot chart the price of conventional corn, like a CME price um, against like our cash prices. And what you see is they, there is a correlation, but it's really weak, you know, weak meaning you try to, maybe the ultimate test is, you know, try to hedge your organic corn position with the CME conventional corn contract and see what happens. And the, 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 the statistical value is if you look, especially in you know, the past six months has been a lot of fun for, for everybody, but you know, it's, a, it's a, you know, one would be a perfect, perfectly correlated, you know, sure. CME corn moves, organic corn moves in tandem. Um, zero would be like zero, you know, no correlation. We're at a 0.15, 0.15. 
is the correlation between the two. So wow. it's a very, very weak correlation. And historically, it's been at more like a 0 0.4, 0 0.39 or 0.4. So not strong enough to, um, to really manage your risk. And yep. so that's why we cover it. it if yeah. the, um, it would be great, you know, if the, there used to be a saying that, you know, organic is just conventional times two. And if that were true, we just wouldn't, I'd just close up shop. Um, you <laughs> right. Really need us, yeah. right? Just, just look at the, the corn price, multiply by two, and then, you know, just adjust, you know, for your business and then be on your way. But what we've seen is there's, it's independently volatile from, uh, it's, it just behaves as a different asset class. <clears throat> is that sort of like a, a feedback loop where you know it sounds like the the in this case the the, the the this this organic corn has to be pretty much dealt spot that is buy and sell kind of in a, in a close time frame to lock in a margin and, and try to mitigate the volatility in lieu of you know, uh, hedging, so to speak, or, or like deferred sales and stuff. I mean, is the bulk of, is the bulk of the cash transactions in, in the nearby or, or how does, how, how does that part of the business work? It's, it's both. So, so we're talking feed grade here. Food grade is like anything it's under contract. Most things it's under contract and you know, no one grows kind of food grade soybeans unless they know who the buyer is. I shouldn't say no one does, but it's, it's much rarer. So, you know, spring folks will get into longer term forward contracts, but not that long term, you know, kind of just a few months down the road. And then, um, you know, harvest come, time comes and they, you know, and they deliver. Feed, there's a spot, an active spot market year round. And that is ten, tends to be how people trade. And because there aren't the more sophisticated risk management techniques, you see folks doing everything from, um, <laughs> I mean, store and ignore taken to hair raising levels, maybe you <laughs> could say, um, to um, there's a lot of back to back contracting, which I just think, you know, slows things down mm -hmm. and still leaves people unhappy, you know, when the market moves against them. We're seeing mm -hmm. that now. Yeah. With, you know, soybeans have touched, organic soybeans have touched $42 a bushel here in recent weeks. Oh, wow. And just the run up in prices has been, um, I have seen now, I always heard that, you know, high prices cause their own set of problems. and now I'm, you know, seeing it up close and personal. What what happens when when that when that does happen? People are suing each other. People are getting in trade disputes with governments, and it's all because of these, you know, high prices. Um, so there's not a lot of, you know, or you, sometimes you can pass the cost along to your, you know, to your customer. Uh, carry costs, you know, when you're talking forty dollar beans, that your carry costs get, you know, real high too. So it's just the transaction costs get much much higher um, when you're talking about these markets that don't have these types of options and you have, you know, a run up in prices. So, so if I'm understanding, obviously the farmer puts in the ground because he's got a contract, he knows what he's going to, you know, at least the price he'll receive when he yeah. grows it. But if it's, if it's going to feed these, these feed customers just buy it as they need it later in the yeah. year. Right. So the, so connecting those two obviously is a, uh, you know, where, where we live. So the elevator side, obviously you can't hedge it. It, yeah. it doesn't really correlate well. So how does, I say elevator, the commercial side, yeah. um, I guess it's a company that's bought and paid the farmer for it. Uh, and then it's delivered to an elevator. This company has their own space or how does that work? There's both. I mean, there's, there are some that are vertically integrated, but you know, like a typical, you know, let's say if you're an L, you might be spending a lot of your time going out and talking to end user customers and saying, well, what do you want to pay? What, you know, mm -hmm. can we lock that in? 
And then you'll go out and talk to your growers and, and try to, you know, lock in that side of it. So it's, it's just a lot of um, very slow work trying to make sure that you've got both legs, you know, locked in so you don't get um, in trouble. And yeah. so, and, and that's, you know, that's really hard. And like I said, it slows everything down. Um, and on top of that, the other risk you have with organic is, can you get it at all? You know, but never mind the price. Mm-hmm. So last year when we had such, you know, we had drought problems, we had real problems with organic oats um, and customers just not getting, you know, just not getting orders filled. Uh, Cause where do you get it? You don't have a lot of other sources. Um, and imagine if you're feeding animals, you're, you're, you know, you can lose your organic certification if you've got to feed your cows or your chickens, you know, conventional grain because you can't find organic. So it's a very conservative, you know, careful um, approach to, to, to grain marketing because you, you have fewer options. So, so uh, but all that being said, I, 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 the assumption is, or at least from my point, is the you know when things work as intended or, or say over the long haul mm-hmm. the margins have got to be pretty good on it or people wouldn't go through oh, yeah. jump these hoops right i mean yeah it, it says all this all these challenges but it's the juice is worth the squeeze so to speak right. that's right and you know just kind of i don't know what, what would a broker make a penny a bushel maybe on conventional um i mean you'll see broker fees that are 25 cents 50 cents 75 cents a bushel um on it but, as know, a cash broker wow yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, so that that's not unusual to see. And then I'll mention one other kind of quirk. There are so many quirks. I tell people all the time, it's like, it's markets are markets, but you know, an organic market is like the regular market's a horse and organic market's like a zebra. It's got the same outlines, but it's got some stripes, <laughs> stripes on it. Um, and so, you know, for example, infrastructure with fuel costs, I was just having a conversation uh, earlier today. So, all right, you got $40 beans. And now if you were to look at a map of handling facilities, cause you can't just take organic grain to any, any old elevator. Mm-hmm. You've got to take it to something that's certified to segregate and handle it as organic. Cause of course, you know, you've got to keep it segregated through the whole supply chain or you, yeah. you lose the benefit on the shelf. So certified organic grain elevators. If you look down at the state of North Dakota we have a map that shows where they're located. There's only like eight of them in the whole state. Um, so you might have be hauling grain some surprisingly long distances to, to your, to your elevator. And so now with fuel costs, like, you know, what does that do to your, uh, to your numbers? It's really, it can get really tricky, um, to, to make those work. So it's, as you said, it's, it's worth it in the end. I mean, we have really good numbers about on-farm profitability for organic production, um, but you, you definitely, it's not the path of least resistance. I mean, you mm-hmm. really got to be intentional. It doesn't just accidentally happen. Oops, I woke up and I'm doing organic today. You, you, <laughs> plan, you definitely plan for it. So It's interesting. You mentioned earlier about the um, commoditization factor. And you hear that so much on the conventional side is, is it's almost a trope now where people's like, we got to decommoditize corn or beans or wheat. And it's like, it's a commodity. How do you, de- yeah. you know, and I think that it's just a, a, it's a, it's a misapplication of the term, you know, I think, you know, differentiation or service or value added, but to decommoditize a commodity. And then from, it sounds like your side on the specialty side that, you know, we would, you would like some of the attributes of a commodity, which mm-hmm. I think in this case would be a liquidity and a, yeah. and a, and a, and a efficiency. And a efficiency of marketability because it is a, it's inherent traits. It just doesn't have that other piece of it. So it's interesting to see the two sides 
juxtaposed. Right. I mean, because, you know, the organics, you think the goal of that obviously is more environmentally conscious and, and more health conscious and everything. But if you think about it, there's a lot of, you know, extra, you know, maybe fuel cost, to, like you're saying, to, to get it. And, and that drives a price up. And then you got the people in the middle who can't hedge. So how do we efficiently protect ourselves? Well, we got to charge more. And so it obviously that grows the, the price. That's not. Uh, but yeah. Anyways, you can see where where obviously I mean, and it, the truth is there is demand for it, a growing demand for it, I, you know, from what I see and understand. Yeah. So obviously that you're going to have to pay more for, for that sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and obviously they are because, because it's still going, it seems to be gaining steam, right? Yeah. Well, you know, and I think it's so interesting <laughs> if ag Twitter is to believe, be believed, there's, <laughs> there's, this, there's this tension between what customers, largely urban want and what suppliers, largely rural want to provide. And it's so interesting to yeah. that tension because you know, on the one hand, it's like there are definitely, there's a cadre of folks that are like, you know what, leave us alone. We know how to, to grow your food and we've been doing it just fine without your input. Thank you very much. And, you know, I see both sides of it. Part of it is true. Like there is nothing. I live in the midst of, you know, I've mostly lived in, in well, now in my adult life, I live in, in just outside of DC. I cannot tell you, and I spend a lot of time with farmers, but I cannot tell you the ins and outs of, you know, when to, plant and when to harvest and what piece of equipment would go better here. And I do not want to learn that. And it's just, that's no, nobody has time to learn someone else's job to the extent that right. they do. Um, on the other hand, the consumer has clearly spoken. And if you walk down, the example I sometimes give in talks is I throw up a slide and it's like, you know, the grocery store 40 years ago when you walk down the aisle and it's like your choices were milk or milk, like whole milk or skin milk was probably about it. Yeah. And now you can still do that. That that market is still there. It's a, it's alive and kicking. But walk down the dairy case now, and it's you know, and it's grass fed milk and organic milk and almond milk and you know, mm-hmm. lactose free milk and you know, it's it's the segmentation is endless, and that's because businesses have figured out that consumers want different things, and then they just adjust to that. And it for the right type of producer or someone who you know, that's opportunity. Um, and you can do that in every aisle. You can do it with eggs, with chocolate, with coffee, with, you know, whatever you want to do. And so to me, it's, it's as, a, as a capitalist, as a business person, this is an opportunity. But not, it's, it can also be, I understand, you know, threatening as well. Mm-hmm. I think those two things tend to go hand in hand over the course of history, opportunity and the, yeah. the, the, the threat to the status quo. And Yeah, yeah that's absolutely right. People can, you know, have all their pearl clutching and virtue signals and all, all they want. But in the end, it's like, Hey, I'll pay a dollar more for a pound of Turkey. How does that work all the way back to the, well, that's some real money, you know, when you cost per uh, price per bushel and everything and, and what practices I got to do. So, and you know, in the end, it's like, show me the money, right? The, the farmer will grow it. You, you provide them the incentive, he'll grow it. And the incentive is there. It, like you said, the, the consumers are demanding it. So and a lot of what we choose, there's no practical reason. I mean, why is why did I choose the color car? I mean, there's no advantage to me over choosing, you know, but I like it. I like it. And so that, that's enough reason. No accounting for taste is what I always tell Jason. It's, it's a completely subjective thing. And But I think some people try to overthink it. And, and then the whole like, I can't believe someone would eat Beyond <laughs> Burger. Who cares? It's, someone is. 
or it wouldn't yeah. be there, you know, but this idea that anything different is a threat yeah. is a strange, you know, aspect of humanity, but uh, you're getting, getting off in the weeds here. But anyway, the uh, Kelly, for, for, from, from what you see out there on this side of the business, is there enough supply meeting demand currently, or is there, is there, is, is it, is it popping up against the ceiling or does it need to bust through? What are you seeing? Yeah. Well, you know, the economist answer is it's always, you know, the, the curves cross. It's just at what price. Um, I will tell you one of the interesting things about organic in particular is we don't produce enough of it in the U.S. So we are very reliant on imports, particularly for certain crops. So even example, you know, we import 80% of the organic soybeans that we um, consume comes from outside of the U.S. And 80% of those soybeans come from India. Um, wow. We, we're a little more self-sufficient when it comes to organic corn. We import probably about 30% of our organic corn uh, comes from outside the U.S. And, um, and then when I say 30%, you know, we're acreage wise, again, it's still really small. We're talking, when it comes to row crops, we're only talking about 2% of all acreage is organic. That's across your know, corn, wheat, soybeans, some mm -hmm. small grains. Um, wheat, we're, we're importing 10% of our organic wheat is, um, is what we import. So it's, um, it's a small market. We, there's opportunity for US growers um, to not make us less reliant on imports. And again, imports itself is a you know, pro and a con. Um, mm -hmm. The reason we import so many, you know, or back to production practices, there's no such thing in organic as a corn on bean, you know, corn bean rotation, or certainly not corn on corn. You just can't do that or you're just, the pests will take over and you, you gotta rely on crop rotations to condition your soil because you can't add chemicals to it. And so um, it makes the market a little less responsive sometimes. You, you just can't turn on a dime and say, well, soybean prices are up. So therefore I grew soybeans last year. I like the price this year, I'm gonna grow soybeans again. You, you, you can't do it. And so um, there's other considerations the producer has to take into account other than price when they're planning out you know, what they're gonna grow for the year. So it just, it makes, and this gets again to why they behave differently in terms of price. The, the supply factors are different. You know, you can't stickier in terms of price. If, I, if I'm a conventional farm grower and I'm like, you know what, next year I want to sell organic. This market looks pretty interesting. Well, then I've got to go, I've got to spend three years. The, the USDA has, has, has dictated that you grow under organic practices for three years. And in year three, that's when you get your organic certification and now can take advantage of those markets. So again, it's, it's slow. When it comes to animal production, you know, a dairy cow, half of, of demand for organic feed is from uh, dairy. And you, you know, pay prices for milk producers go up. You want to switch over, switch your herd to organic. Well, you know, organic cows either have to be born that way. You, know, you have to feed the cow for the last one third of its gestation has to be fed an organic diet for the calf to be born organic. So there's just no, it's hard to increase your herd if you, you know, if you want to quickly ramp up. So the, that's why, you know, getting there, there is enough supply out there, but it, it just, it can't turn on a dime to, to meet rising demand and then falling demand. You know, if you're producing too much more organic milk, you know, we do know of cases where um, producers have had to dump it or processors have had to dump it or sell it as conventional you know, if they can't find a buyer. And we hear about that on the, <clears throat> on the grain elevator side where, if a specialty buyer can't take the specialty or, you know, miss the mark on the quality mm -hmm. specs, but just a hair gets, you know, it's number two, whatever, you know, at that point. And so, you know, that, that's kind of 
can't turn on a dime, make the switch. And I assume, you know, because if I'm a producer listening to this and I just heard $42 soybeans, it's probably going to peak interest. Yeah. But, you know, what, you know, barriers to entry, obviously the regulation side, but as far as like the infrastructure side, what you gave the example in North Dakota, and there's only a handful of places that buy this stuff, but, you know, across the U.S., uh, it, it, where, where does the infrastructure stand for this? How, how, I guess, let me rephrase it. How hard or easy would it be for a country elevator that's hearing this and is like, oh, I'm kind of interested. I could, you know, set aside a, a, an annex with a leg and some bins mm-hmm. specifically for this. What, what, what does that process look like? Well, you know, if you look at a map of the U.S., there's a lot more infrastructure for organic and a lot more acres in um, some of the northern plains, you know, into kind of upper Midwest. The mm-hmm. I-states, while there is definitely organic production there, they are not the leaders in organic grain production. And I have a couple of theories on this. One is, um, you know, organic, well, conventional overall, conventional production, I mean, you can run, you can farm 5,000 acres with not that many people. And, um, you know, as much as anything else, conventional ag today, it's a, it's a labor saving. You know, if you're able to put chemicals and fertilizer down, that's a labor saving device. You don't have to flame weed. You don't have to go out and walk fields as much. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe with some of the resistance issues you, you are. But, um, but, you know, organic tends to be more labor intensive, which means you tend to have smaller farms. Um, the average organic farm is about half the size of the, organ- of the average conventional farm. And the states that lend themselves to that, where you may not, you know, you don't have 10,000 acres of just flat land, um, are, are those states like in Wisconsin and Minnesota and, and some into the Dakotas. The other theory I have is that those states are used to segregating grain, or they're used to growing a lot of different types of crops anyway. If you've already got bins for field peas, you know, and corn and some wheat, you know, then just repurpose it and you can use some of that for organic. So I think, I think infrastructure does have a lot to do with why organic seems to be a little bit more viable in, in certain areas um, than other. Then you have, um, you know, if, if we had someone on here from Organic Valley, you know, you've got a history of, of a lot of, of animal production. Organic, more than conventional, is dependent for corn and, and soybeans, is dependent on, on demand coming from animals because we don't have an ethanol in this. Nobody's yet, somebody somewhere maybe will figure out how to market organic ethanol, but they haven't done it yet. So, <laughs> So um, there's only two places it goes, animal feed or food, and you know, food use is, is pretty small. So, um, so organic tends to grow up in tandem with you know, animal feeding operations, dairy and poultry in particular. We don't have a huge uh, organic beef or pork sector. So it's, it's dairy and poultry are the drivers. So anywhere you find organic dairy and poultry, you'll find, um, you know, the demand is there, you'll find, you know, growers that'll meet that demand, and then you'll find the, the infrastructure, the storage, the processing infrastructure to, to fill that demand as well. Do you think on the animal side, is it do more on the poultry and pork because they're, they tend to be more vertically integrated than the beef side? Some of that. Also, you can't feed, like, some of the options aren't there for organic. Like, there's not, you know, there's DDGs or not, there's no organic. Oh, uh, yeah. So you don't that have the sense. same options for feed that you would have um you know that you would have for conventional so so, uh we talked a lot about organic what other sort of markets do you track and you know Mm -hmm. what takes the bulk of your your time apart from organic we we track non-gmo which is a harder market for us to track than organic 
because back to the standards, there's no federal standard for non-GMO. There is a pretty widely, you know, there's commercial standards that have, have stood in. And then for the, the export, I mean, traditionally non-GMO has been very export oriented. What's different is there's a growing domestic market now for non-GMO. So, you know, you have folks like the non-GMO project, um, you know, and you have others that have put forth standards that, that folks will grow to. So we, we do cover that. Um, it's also harder to get a handle on non-GMO acreage because there's a ton of non-GMO. We, we know it's non-GMO acreage we report you know, every year, but we don't know how much of that with the same degree of precision, we don't know how much is going into a segregated non-GMO market. Like lots of farmers will grow non-GMO because they just maybe don't want to pay for traits or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but are you selling it for a non-G, into a non-GMO market? Is it being segregated, stored, and then, you know, incorporated into a, a, a segregated product, that's a smaller market and it's harder to know um, the true numbers there. The, the other thing we're doing, so organic and non-GMO grain markets was what we focused on. And then we started covering uh, just in the past year, organic dairy markets. So we cover prices for organic fluid milk, um, cream, and some pa- milk powders we're starting to collect prices on as well. And then, you know, if you think about like the world opening up to the, you know, needing this information. We, um, I think that, you know, again, you know, yellow peas, chickpeas, anything that's going into these plant protein markets is super interesting. They're not, you know, widely understood or reported on. There's no exchanges for them. So that's interesting to us. We were, we had actually had started really seriously looking at covering grass-fed proteins. So the grass-fed beef in mm-hmm. particular, and then the USDA decided to um, that they would not promulgate standards for it. And so we stopped, we didn't mm-hmm. move any further in covering it. Cause again, back to standards, we, we are not in the business of creating standards. We just want to follow markets once the standards are there. But I still think grass fed is, is would be interesting if the, the industry could agree on a, what grass fed meant. Um, and then looking overseas, I'm fascinated by things like certified palm oil. Uh, oil palm is such a dicey environmental commodity and there's been a lot of work on standards for what you know sustainably harvested, grown and harvested palm oil looks like. Um, we don't, they don't segregate it like we do organic. It's, it tends to be like this mass balance type of um, tracking system where it's like, okay, we grew it. We know we grew a certain amount of it. It all gets mixed into a tanker together. And then, you know, if you use it in a product, we're just gonna kind of account for how much flows through the system. So that's harder for us to cover. But, um, but not impossible. So, you know, we're looking at markets like that as well. I would, I would think that once the, the infrastructure and the ability to segregate got easier, the, the tracking and stuff yeah. would be easier too, because obviously there's value, a differentiation there. Right. You know, any of the stuff you mentioned, it just seems like that's a big piece of the puzzle, which, which should be a surprise to nobody. But, you know, when, when you hear, at least when we talk to you know, grain elevators on the commercial side and conventional, it's, it's usually that it's, you know, the, the, the need to keep it separate and to make sure stuff's cleaned out. And it's, it's more of a, I guess, kind of like on the farm side, it's a, it's a practice thing on the elevator side. It's a, it's a handling thing. Yeah. Uh, and or trucks, making sure the trucks are cleaned out and whatever protocols there are, you know, that's, that's what it sounds like it comes down to a lot of times. Right. You know, if you're a toll processor and you've got a, mm. you know, on milk on the dairy side actually this is very common it's small enough that you may not be 100 percent organic so it's like okay on tuesdays and thursdays we run organic products so we got to flush out all the lines you know clean out everything and so you know it's it's work for sure mm-hmm. so with with all the the higher 
you know, values at stake and then all the regulations to, to get around and get around or comply with, I should say, <laughs> it, it kind of, kind of begs my question, you know, are there people that do you see much as far as bad actors and things like that? And, and how's that dealt with, I guess? Yeah. Your- I mean, my, my sort of observation is anytime humans get involved, there are people that are going to try and, you know, game yep. the system. Amen so- to that. You know, it's just it's just something that you know, and the, and the motivation is there, right? You know, with with you know, twelve dollar corn, you know, and 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 forty dollar beans, there there's the motivation. So, you know, and then combined with the difficulty is organic corn doesn't look any different, right? Like you look down into a bin, you're not going to be like, oh, I see, that's the organic grain and that's the conventional. So what it relies on is paperwork, and it relies on you know a tracking process all the way through the system. And so starting with the farm, you know, on-farm boots on the ground, an inspector visits a farm every single year. And you gotta have your paperwork in order and they're gonna walk around the farm and look and see, you know, do you have buffer zones? Is there, you know, risk of cross-pollination, you know, cross-contamination from pollen and that sort of thing. And then if you meet all that, then you get a certificate, you know, and then you're able to sell that grain on and then there's, a, there's transfer certificates and, and, and whatnot. Um, you know, the, the, the facility you go to also has to be inspected yearly to make sure that, you know, best practices are being followed. But, you know, there's been documented cases in the past of people switching out grain, um, you know, and that sort of thing. By the way, one of the best practices is the, the really, um, the, the really, the buyers who are really on top of it will test grain. You can't test necessarily see if this is organic or that is organic, but you can test for things like pesticide residue and you can test for genetic, you know, presence uh, or GMO presence. And so um, that type of testing goes on, but the the testing itself, interestingly enough, is not, that's not something that USDA requires. That's something that the the buyers have insisted on, the good ones, um, because they just want to make sure that they're not, you know, they don't have contaminated product. So you can just imagine for those of you that are, you know, in the business and, and just put a little creativity to it, like the opportunities, oh, where can you, could I do it, you know, one night between, you know, you know, could I switch out the load, you know, one night and hey, in the morning, it's something different. If I'm bringing it from overseas, can it, you know, can it be switched at a port or something like that? So people have tried it, um, you know, obviously, if and when you, when you get caught, you know, you get kicked out. On our own trading platform, we've, we only let domestic grain trade because we just don't have enough we're small and as, as a small startup, we can't tell you what's going on really in China. So everybody who's on our platform has to be in good standing with their certifier. You know, they have to present the proper paperwork, you know, all of that has to be verified, but, but yeah, I mean, you definitely have, um, have folks that'll try to, to game the system. I have, I have one final question. If this okay. is the final Kelly, what is your take on cauliflower rice? <laughs> Oh man, it's, it's I you know at the risk of offending anyone, I will just say um, I am not a fan of. I think things should stay in their lanes. I think cauliflower is perfectly good in soups and stews and salads, but when I there we go if, when I eat a slice of pizza, I I want to taste the you know the wheat. <laughs> yeah. I really don't want to eat a cauliflower. I I was at a um, one of my old colleagues had brought in, and I will say this as someone who you know loves vegans and and sometimes you know i choose to eat something without any meat but mm. when someone brings in a chocolate cake to the break room i may be a little bitter and you bite into it expecting a real chocolate cake and it is in fact a vegan chocolate cake 
There is a moment of sadness. <laughs> it's like a little bitter that. sounds like a, 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 a <laughs> toned yeah. down a little bit from what yeah. I'm imagining my, my response would be. Oh, I had a I had a quote here wrote down from you from our, our previous visits. The cauliflower rice is the spirit airlines of food. I, <laughs> I'm right. actually going to get yeah. that tattooed next week. Cauliflower rice is the spirit airlines of right. Yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> I realize we're winding this down, but I I can't. Um, let me let me just say one other thing, which is what sure. data uh, um, enables. So we are like you know, like I said, we love data here. But what's interesting is now that our data has some history and hopefully some credibility in the marketplace, it's interesting to see what some of our customers and partners are doing with it. So we just got into an agreement with Stable Price um, about, a, I don't know, six, eight weeks ago. And they are, they're a kind of a scrappy little startup that I think um, might be interesting as a guest to have on here at some point. But they are building option contracts for things that are not traded on exchanges so that you can do like an OTC um, and the, the brilliant hack that they've come up with, because we were like, oh, you know, several years ago, we thought, oh, options would be great. You know, and we can do an OTC option. We've got the data. Mm-hmm. But what we found is um, <laughs> something called a master ISDA agreement, <laughs> which as someone who had worked at exchanges, that was not really part of my world. But I very, very quickly learned that it's like a full employment act for lawyers. And you can never get the two sides quite lined up. And then everybody's going to, lawyers are going to argue until... We all retire about who gets to sue who and who's credit worthy. So we we kind of just shut that down and said this is never going to go forward if we all have to if every counterparty has to be master is the agreement has to govern everything. So what Stable Price does is they have on the on the opposite side of every trade is a reinsurance company. So that takes care of you know counterparty risk and you know all the other things that make these deals stop um, stop them in their tracks. And our data, you can use our data to settle these contracts. You can use them to, to you know, to value them. Um, stable price brings the, the parties together. And then you've got a natural, you know, long or short on one side and a, an insurance company on the other. And that's the type of risk management that really good cash market data can enable. And so we're hoping yes. to see more of that in the coming years. Right. That's really cool. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think. Yeah, I mean, a big part, we, we talked about the infrastructure and everything of this is to grow in efficiency is, you know, the, that sort of product and, and what you offer just some transparency and, and ways people can do it. Because, yeah, it's especially the organic, it's just not. Well, reliable data. I think that's what yeah. it boils down to. Reliable, transparent, and so that so people can see. So this is huge, obviously, to make this, you know, more efficient uh, in, in our in our More business. usable, yes. Yeah. This is the step that that needs to be. So, um, so Kelly, if someone is interested in, say, it's an elevator, say it's a farmer, say, you know, this is something I need to look into as a possibility for me, either handling it or growing it. And uh, they'd like to talk to you or get more involved with your company. Like, how, how do they do that and all that? Yeah, if you um, easiest way is just to go to our website, which is mercaris.com, M-E-R-C-A-R-I-S.com. And on the homepage, you can sign up for updates, you know, information. There's some free information there. And then if you want to get more in depth than the really um, valuable stuff, we have a subscription, which, you know, there's several different levels. Just depends on, you know, how much data you want. Um, If you're a farmer, send me an email directly because we've got a special set of tools that we, you know, give to farmers and the farm, we don't charge farmers for, um, for some, you know, some really, I think, cool data access. 
we're, we're symbiotic, especially with growers. You know, if you provide data, you give us some farm date level data, like on prices, we keep it all anonymous and we give you a bunch of data for free. And that's how we get a lot of our, our price information. So contact me directly, you can either if you're a Twitter user, um, I'm at, you know, you can go to at Mercaris uh, or you can go to, you know, at K and then James spelled backwards, S-E-M-A-J, and I'll, I'll get back to you. Or you can email, you know, on our, on our website is the email address and we'll get right, right back to you. So that's the best way is, is, is online to get us. Very cool. And what does Mercaris mean? It's, you know, I'm, I'm such, naming things is not my ministry. I was, I'm surprised I was allowed to help name my children. I am terrible at the name of names. <laughs> um, but it's, the, it's the, the Latin root for trading and marketplace, mer Mercatus. And mm -hmm. so we did a play on, on, on that and came up with Mercatus. Love it. Nice. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on today and, and enlightening us. And, and I'm sure our audience too, this is a, a side of uh, the industry that uh, I know is, is growing and, and a lot of people have questions on. So thank you very much for uh, uh, helping uh, shine a light on a path for us. Anytime, anytime. Absolutely. And I'd highly encourage anyone interested. Yeah, please reach out. She's She's uh, very knowledgeable, as, as you can tell from this from this interview and, and all this stuff. So, And I love this stuff. It's fascinating. So. Yeah. We're always happy to have fellow nerds on. So thank you very much. As always, thanks for downloading and listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with folks you know in the business. And if you'd like to reach out anytime about anything at all or have any show ideas, you can always find us on Twitter at Elevators Cut. Follow us there, tweet at us, DM us, and we'll always respond. Till next time, for Roger, I'm Jason. For Jason, I'm Roger. Thanks for listening to The Elevator's Cut. Oh!